Hello, I'm Liz David Barrett from the Centre for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex. I'm delighted to welcome you to the 100th episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. The podcast was set up originally by Matthew Stevenson, Niels Kobis and Christopher Starker. So a big thank you to them for having such a great idea and for recording the first 80-odd episodes. We're really delighted to have taken over hosting the podcast here in Sussex. And one of the things that we've done is recognising that this is such a great resource and that, the, in fact, the previous 99 episodes cover so many important themes in the study of corruption. We've actually organised them into chapters. So if you look in the show notes, you'll see that we've now got a, a page where you can go and look in and listen to the podcast by theme. So you can look at corruption theory, for example, or state capture and kleptocracy or corruption and integrity in sports. So I would encourage you all to to do that. I think it's a, a really great resource and a great way of tapping into the latest debates and research. So for this 100th episode, we've taken a different format. We have asked people from around the world, uh, many of them the scholars and anti-corruption practitioners who have been uh, interviewed before on the podcast, but many also who have not. We've tried to get a, a good mix of academics and practitioners, but some of the really key thinkers who, of course, are big names in the field. So we've asked them each to answer two questions. Firstly, what is one thing about corruption that you've changed your thinking on in the past 10 years? And secondly, what is the most significant development, positive or negative, in relation to corruption and corruption studies over the past 30 years? So we've got some really great responses. I think it's a, a pretty fascinating listen. And so we're going to head right into it. And we're starting off with Michael Johnston. Hello, Sussex. Uh, this is Michael Johnston, a uh, former professor at Colgate University in upstate New York in the U.S., uh, retired in 2015, now living in Austin, Texas, which is an excellent perch from which to uh, observe uh, corruption of one sort or another. Uh, my thought is to address the question about uh, what's one thing about corruption that you uh, have has changed your thinking in the last 10 years. And in my case, that would be the uh, the notion and the research uh, having to do with institutional uh, corruption. This being activities that are legal or at least not clearly illegal and yet strike many people uh, as corrupt or corrupting. Activities that may in fact enjoy legal and even uh, constitutional protection in the United States, such as uh, various forms of lobbying and uh, uh, political contribution. For a long time I had uh, many debates with students and others about whether the notion of corruption should just be extended over into uh, the private sector to include activities in business and so forth. And there are lots of activities um, in that uh, sector that fit most people's notion of corruption pretty well. But at the same time, if we simply take corruption and extend it to the uh, uh, full diversity of the private sector, it uh, quickly sort of becomes a blanket term for whatever we don't like and uh, loses um, whatever utility it still, uh, it still retains. I worked on that dilemma to some extent with my own syndrome of corruption of influence markets, which I think has uh, uh, some uses. But then 
Lawrence Lessing, Harvard Law School, uh, Dennis Thompson, had uh, a, a number of publications come out about institutional corruption that were quite provocative. This is about 10 years ago. And what they added to the notion was that activities that maybe were not illegal, maybe took place in the private sector, still ought to be thought of as corruption because they involved abuses of public trust, be it trust in science, trust in um, uh, public officials, trust in uh, private enterprise or whatever whatever that might be. And that uh, the uh, protection that they may enjoy legally, constitutionally and otherwise was being abused uh, in the name of activities that uh, definitely uh, harmed, uh, harmed the public. A second dimension there is that Institutional corruption is widely regarded as such by the general public, members of which are not terribly bothered by the legality issue, but who uh, know abuses of wealth and power when they see them. And this kind of idea, I think, is extremely useful for understanding links between inequality and corruption. The ways in which, for example, in the United States, political money is largely given uh, within the uh, strictures of the law and under uh, procedures that uh, are legally legitimate, um, and uh, uh, or at least in ways, here I'm thinking of so-called dark money, that are not clearly illegal, uh, and yet are widely regarded as uh, corrupt or corrupting. Uh, 75% majorities routinely saying that they feel pushed aside by um, big money political uh, uh, contributors. This also ties to the uh, issue of duplicitous exclusion that Mark Warren sees as the essence of corruption in a democracy. It helps us understand the rise of populist demagogues, uh, Donald Trump, uh, whose name I don't like to mention, um, Bolsonaro, uh, Viktor Orban, and, um, and others. And their way of manipulating issues that we anti-corruption reformers really must reclaim um, as our own. Uh, with my economist friend, uh, Oz Dinser, I've been working with data on the U.S. states showing uh, legal corruption maps onto theory, theoretical concepts in ways that make a great deal of sense and that uh, can explain a lot, uh, that help us uh, make connections to uh, relationships between corruption and trust. Here I'm thinking of the work of uh, Rick Uslanner, um, Boo Rothstein, Anna Persson, uh, and so forth. Uh, and that work is coming out in a book called Corruption in America, a 50 Ring Circus sometime in 2024. Uh, this might seem a shameless plug for my own book. And in fact, that's exactly what it is. Uh, but in any event, that notion of institutional corruption has really uh, revised and extended my own thinking and has um, enabled uh, connections to the excellent work of many others uh, whose ideas are really needed to take uh, and look at in, um, in different ways. In another 10 years, I may figure out what I think I think about all of this. Um, I'll, I'll get back to you when I do. But meanwhile, I wish you best of luck with the podcast series. Hi, this is Lena Coney Hoffman from the Chatham House Africa Programs Social Norms and Accountable Governance Project, fondly called SNAG. And I'm addressing the question, what is one thing about corruption that you've changed your thinking on in the past 10 years? One thing about corruption that my thinking has changed on 
is how less of a focal point corruption itself should be in my work. Over the years, I found that focusing on corruption itself can become a demoralizing strategy. I started out as an anti-corruption investigator some 20 years ago at Nigeria's anti-corruption agency. And naturally, our focus was on investigating public officials. I did that for a period of a number of years and eventually left the corruption law enforcement space quite dissatisfied, to be honest. It wasn't because I thought investigating and prosecuting corruption cases was pointless. It was more a case of experiencing how costly in time and human resources it was, and still is, frankly, to go after corrupt people. I also saw firsthand how most governments simply cannot afford corruption law enforcement, at least not at the scale at which corruption actually happens. My work since this realization has been focused less on the problem of corruption itself. I really believe that focusing a little more attention on how people affected by corruption think about the behaviors that are labeled corrupt and why they think so, and also when they think so, can really help us offer people the tools they need to mobilize collective action and keep pressure on governments and institutions to improve the quality of their lives. I really think anti-corruption needs to be more about the quality of life of people affected by corruption, not just fighting corruption for the sake of fighting. Hi, I am Alina Munjo PPD uh, from the European Research Center for Anti-Corruption and State Building at Luis Guido Carli in Rome, and I'm addressing the question, what really important happened in relation to corruption in the past 10 years? And I would say that what really happened is that we came, uh, due to the time interval, to the other side of the rare success corruption stories. In countries such as mine, Romania and Brazil, who really had uh, big anti-corruption campaigns, the kind that everybody would wish to see everywhere, uh, have by now come across uh, a long time interval and uh, they have seen that uh, their successes were really not sustainable. So corruption has to, to be put in a, in a context and this context is globally unfavorable because what happened in this interval is that uh, corruption became generalized globally and we now have um, weaponization of corruption and weaponization of anti-corruption but none of them look really very good none of them look very objective and grounded in facts let alone grounded in science where the gap between uh, between real science and policy only uh, grew in this interval. So I think what we should do and what we can do more modestly speaking as, as scientists in this period uh, is simply speak out the truth very loudly because we now live in times where due to corruption you can actually bribe entire committee of human rights in the European Parliament. You can get away with ethnic cleansing as we see in Nagorno-Karabakh these days because once corruption just becomes uh, an element 
in a, in a global world like the one we are witnessing, people will discover and they have already discovered how functional corruption is, how instrumental corruption is, how what a reliable instrument it is. And they will really be very tempted to use it. So we really have to summon all the arsenal to explain the downsides of corruption and uh, we simply have to expose even the minor instances of corruption or we will see it really generalized in uh, international affairs. Hi, this is Paul Hayward from the University of Nottingham and I'm addressing the question, what is one thing about corruption that you've changed your thinking on in the past 10 years? I think I'd probably say that I've come to question the utility of so-called awareness raising about corruption. As some people will know, I've been strongly critical for many years of attempts to measure corruption that lead to ranking countries on a scale that captures some kind of overall amount of corruption in country X or country Y. That's called seeing corruption in monochrome, as Michael Johnston and Scott Fritzen neatly described it in, in a recent book on the conundrum of corruption. But whereas I used to see that one good thing that such indices did was that they raised awareness of corruption and that and that was seen as a useful thing. Now I'm less convinced about whether that is such a good thing. That's not to say that I think we should downplay corruption. Rather, it's it's the way that we've collectively allowed a discussion of corruption to be framed, looking at it too often in basically crude and undifferentiated terms, means that we've allowed a situation to develop where it's all too common that corruption is just assumed to be absolutely everywhere. And that, in turn, of course, makes it much more difficult to persuade people that we can do anything at all about it. So I now probably think that awareness raising needs to be treated with way more caution than I did in the past and particularly in this age of alternative facts post-truth and conspiracy theories we actually need to be ever more careful about being you know really very specific when it comes to talking about what exactly we mean and what we're trying to do when we both talk about corruption and indeed when we try to seek to raise awareness about corruption. Unless we do that, I fear we'll simply create ever more fertile terrain for populists and authoritarians to exploit the understandable disillusionment and cynicism which will continue to grow amongst populations. I'm Florentia Gerzovic, an independent consultant, and I'm answering the question about the most significant development in relation to corruption studies in the past 30 years. I've always been interested in the politics of anti-corruption, perhaps because my first job 
was in an anti-corruption office almost 20 years ago. And researcher guidance at the time was contradictory and quite ill-suited for the context. If anti-corruption for us was about the democratization, then insights from colonial Hong Kong's infringements on civil rights wouldn't travel. If we talked to the US Office of Government Ethics or the World Bank, we didn't, weren't getting insights about what had happened post-Watergate. In practice, lots of experimentation has been happening in the Global South in the last 30 years. Experimentation, not a model, but trial and error with lots of tacit knowledge emerging about the politics of anti-corruption. Yet there has been too little investment in evaluating those efforts. There is almost an unacceptable gap between the center, center of gravity of formalized knowledge in Northern Circle and the center of gravity of anti-corruption experimentation in the last 30 years. And that makes the work of researchers from the Global South who are following rather than leading experimentation even more valuable. You have the work of people like Sebastian Pereira, uh, who looked at networks of human rights, democrat democracy, and anti-corruption advocates. Luciana Darros reflecting on real time about Lava Jato, or my colleagues at Politeia researching corporate action of anti-corruption of procurement at municipal level in Brazil. Their positionality is looking at locally and empirically grounded research that actually challenges many of the assumptions that we make in global circles about how change is or isn't happening. And so for me, the challenge moving forward remains, how do we look at our own political economy so that we make the most about, of this research uh, and we encourage it to look at the practice of anti-corruption and assess it as it happens, as it challenges decontextualized assumptions about the politics of the search for a solution or a little bit better than before that might be useful for those in the trenches. I would say that for me, that's a secret sauce of some of the most exciting work that I see forward. Hello, this is Joseph Poshigai Alvarez from Osaka University, and I'm addressing the question of, of what is the most significant development in relation to corruption and corruption studies over the past 30 years. This is certainly a difficult question when we remember that the last 30 years is more or less the whole trajectory of the contemporary approach to corruption and corruption studies. So many topics come immediately to mind, for example, from the progress we have made in terms of designing different ways of measuring corruption, to recognizing its multifaceted nature, uh, the embeddedness of corrupt practices around the world, uh, and many others. Personally, I am a political scientist by discipline, and so I felt immediately compelled to think about political developments that may be called significant. And I almost decided to select the somewhat recent realization that we couldn't seriously discuss anti-corruption measures without acknowledging the prominence of politics in this equation. Very much connected to, to this uh, phenomenon or movement of uh, thinking and doing politically. However, uh, this is finally not the answer I want to give for no other reason that politics have been rediscovered, uh, let's say, by but they never were truly out, at least not in research. And so no, the answer I actually want to offer concerns non-state actors, specifically private enterprise and civil society organizations. This might not sound very unique 
in terms of an answer. If I may be allowed to be more precise, I think that the most significant developments over the past 30 years have been the role that anti-corruption compliance, one, corporate non-prosecution agreements, two, and civil society organization and social movements, three, have played in expanding the fight against corruption into a truly global phenomenon, way beyond any of our expectations back in the 1990s. Especially during a time in which the focus from many scholars and international practitioners was on devising technical solutions to combating corruption, especially in partnership with governors, or at least with the expectation that governors would faithfully implement all sorts of policy recommendations, much of what we have actually seen in terms of success has something to do in one way or another with private actors. When I think about success stories today, I don't think about the level of implementation of the ANCA around the world, and I'm even more cynical about the whole idea of political will. So no, what comes to my mind are the billions in fines paid by multinational corporations such as Odebrecht in Brazil, or the popular mobilization that brought down a corrupt regime in Guatemala a few years ago. While the field of corruption studies is still heavily influenced by a preference for looking at former political actors and processes, and I perfectly understand this, I truly believe that more attention to non-state actors is very well deserved and potentially have the capacity of illuminating corruption and anti-corruption studies for the years to come. Good evening. I am Jorge Alatorre, President of the Citizen Participation Committee of the National Anti-Corruption System from Mexico. What is the most significant development, positive or negative, in relation to corruption and corruption studies over the past 30 years? In my opinion, the admission that corruption is a phenomenon occurring both in the public and private sector. We have transitioned from a government center perspective to a more encompassing comprehension of corruption's reach. For several years, governments were regarded in early literature and even in recent public policy as the sole culprit without considering the other side of the equation. This alternative approach grants similar importance to both the demand and supply side, offering a better grasp for research and policy purposes. Furthermore, it opens a window into corruption occurring exclusively within the confines of the private sector. It is now common to see the rising trend of compliance programs and an invigorating concern of large firms such as Siemens, even if solely for the purpose of atonement for past transgressions, although often mandated by judicial courts fails. From the research perspective, there is a plethora of subjects that could benefit from further attention, such as which government's format offers reinforced accountability or how private firms exert political influence through illegal or illegitimate means, seeking to extract public rents. Compare permissiveness on corruption from corporate or public sector culture could also yield interesting findings. Hi, I am Delia Ferreira Rubio, and I am the chair of Transparency International. And I will address the question, what is the most significant development, positive or negative, in relation to corruption and corruption studies 
over the past 30 years? And it is an interesting question because this year Transparency International is celebrating its 30th anniversary. I would say that a positive development has been that corruption is now in the public global agenda. But in terms of the phenomenon itself, corruption has become more sophisticated and war, uh, and much more complex nowadays. 30 years ago, corruption was almost synonym of bribery. With globalization, new forms of corruption appear, particularly grand corruption. Corruption became a uh, transborder uh, phenomenon. And uh, this uh, means that we have to develop new tools to face and address the problem. Uh, with the actual geopolitical situation, we have seen also the appearance of a new form of corruption, strategic corruption or geopolitical corruption, which is the use of corrupt uh, practices by kleptocratic or authoritarian regimes as part of a foreign policy tool or a, a foreign economic tool. And, and this, of course, is another development in what corruption means and how to uh, counteract and fight against corruption. Apart from these types of corruption, we have new actors in uh, the panorama, particularly I am referring to uh, the intervention of organized crime in many countries as corrupt actors. In terms of the studies about corruption, we have advanced a lot as we have now sectorial studies or studies that analyze particular aspects of the phenomenon. For instance, we have uh, studies on corruption and foreign bribery, on sextortion, on illicit financial flows, capture of state, organized crime and political finance, private sector governance or corporate governance in terms of corruption and how to uh, react to it, or accountability studies in terms of uh, how to fight corruption. And also we are starting to see some particular studies devoted to the problem of corruption in the new tech era where artificial intelligence has appeared in the scenario as a very important tool but can be used for good and evil and also embed corruption in itself. So thank you very much. Hi, this is Matthew Stevenson at the Harvard Law School. I'm going to try to address both of your questions if I have time. On your first question, what is one thing about corruption that I've changed my thinking on in the past 10 years? I would say that would have to be the viability of a more incremental or gradual anti-corruption strategy uh, as opposed to a big bang or big push crackdown. When I started in the field, I was quickly convinced by some what seemed like fairly sophisticated game theoretic analyses and case studies that because corruption has this well-known self-reinforcing property, the only effective way really to shift from a high corruption state to a low corruption state would be a kind of big bang, intense 
um, push to really uh, shock the system out of its corrupt equilibrium. Over time, I came, became convinced both that the economic models had been incorrectly applied and interpreted, and also that if one looked at a longer sweep of history, there would actually be um, quite a few counterexamples that suggest a more incremental or gradual approach is viable. And I ended up writing two papers on this, one a theory paper and one a co-authored history paper, which perhaps uh, can be put in the show notes of this episode that uh, attempted to explain why my thinking on that was different from it was before. Your second question concerns the most significant development in relation to corruption studies over the past 30 years. So 30 years back will take us to 1993, and I would say that by far the most significant development with respect to corruption studies, which implies sort of the academic or scholarly study of corruption, would be the creation and widespread availability of various quantitative corruption indicators like Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index or the World Bank Institute's Worldwide Governance Indicators. The existence of these quantitative estimates of perceived corruption dramatically transformed the field. It's difficult to understate how different the corruption studies field looked after uh, the availability of those indicators from how it looked before. It really ushered in an era which we're still in the middle of, of an emphasis on empirical analysis of corruption studies. The impact was maybe not entirely positive. There have been a lot of uh, concerns raised, I think some valid concerns about the use of these indicators and what we can and cannot learn from research based on them. But in terms of the most significant development in terms of impact on the field, I feel like the, the creation of those indicators has got to be it. Hello, this is Susan Rose Ackerman at Yale University. I'd like to answer or think about your first question, what is the one thing about corruption that has changed your thinking in the past 10 years? I think the important issue is drawing the line between the kinds of corruption and bribery that count as illegal activities and the kinds of activities which are seen as the normal behavior of political actors and uh, public officials. Uh, obviously, everyone needs a certain level of discretion to make choices, but there's been a move, at least in the U.S., to uh, in the federal courts uh, to define corruption quite narrowly, uh, to leave a lot of space for ordinary quid pro quo transactions between uh, political actors and um, people seeking their support. And my belief is that that has gone too far. Uh, we are going to see what happens with the indictment of Senator Mendezes, Mendezes uh, recently. Uh, and it looks to me as if what he's done should fit within the definition of bribery and corruption under the law. But the past uh, decisions in the U.S. courts have suggested a kind of of, of tolerance of certain kinds of quid pro quo uh, behavior. So although in the past I have been quite definite on the idea that we shouldn't call everything we don't like corrupt, um, that we can still be critical of various kinds of self-seeking behavior, but to necessarily put it in the, in the corruption box um, to me implies a certain um, decision about what counts as legal behavior and what counts as illegal behavior. And I am concerned 
that uh, that at least in the United States, that line has been pushed quite far uh, away from uh, a set of activities or categorizing categorizing a set of activities as uh, as as not corrupt or as not illegal in a way that will undermine and and weaken the the um, character of our political uh, system so i think that's one way to the way i would respond to this question that you posed thank you bye My name is John Githongo from Kenya, and I'm answering the question, what is the most significant development in relation to corruption and corruption studies over the last 30 years? One of the most fascinating aspects of human behavior to me has been the fact that organized crime and corruption networks are some of the most innovative and most rapid adapters of new technology all the time um, in, in, in human life. And... And nothing demonstrates this more than the extent to which we've, our economies have, have digitized. And this, of course, was accelerated and intensified dramatically by the COVID-19 pandemic. But our society, our culture, and our politics increasingly plays out in this digital realm. And we're only beginning to learn um, how this um, impacts us in our, in our everyday lives. Of course, uh, what happens in, in, in the virtual realm has very profound and real-world results in, in our everyday physical realm. And I think this is something that we are coming to terms with. Uh, I think the younger you are, uh, the better in doing that. And I think this is, for me, the most significant development vis-a-vis um, -vis corruption. Thank you. Hi, this is John Kua, a former professor of political science at the National University of Singapore. I will be answering this question. What is the most significant development, positive or negative, in relation to corruption and corruption studies during the past 30 years? I began my first research project on corruption in Singapore in 1977, nine years after Guna murder had highlighted research taboo on corruption studies in 1968. Nevertheless, as corruption was still a dirty word, negative bureaucratic behavior was used instead for title of the research project. In short, the positive development of the evolution of corruption studies from its death during the 1960s because of research taboo to a vibrant growth industry after the 1990s has resulted into a rich body of literature today on the perceived extent of corruption and its causes, consequences, control measures and the reforms, reforms required for addressing it. For example, in my research corruption and governance in Asian countries, I found that the government's strong political will and his reliance on an independent and adequately resourced anti-corruption agency by the Corrupt Practices Investigation Bureau, CPIB Singapore, and the Independent Commission Against Corruption, ICAC in Hong Kong, SAR, are the critical factors responsible for their success in minimizing corruption. On the other hand, 
in spite of what is known today, today, for combating corruption, the disappointment is that many governments lack the strong political will for implementing the necessary reforms for addressing the causes of corruption. They succumb instead to temptation of using the anti-corruption agencies either as attack dogs against their opponents or as ineffective paper tigers. I am Laode Muhammad Sharif, Executive Director of the Partnership for Governance Reforms of Chemitron and a former Commissioner of Corruption Eradication Commission of the Republic of Indonesia. One thing that changed my thinking in the last 10 years in relation to corruption is that I was thinking that corruption prevention and corruption prosecution will become the main concern of national and subnational governments or even for international organizations and multinational uh, corporations. But unfortunately, uh, anti-corruption is never treated as something serious by the government at national and subnational levels. And similarly, anti-corruption it is actually never uh, treated as something serious by international uh, organizations or multinational companies. Anti-corruption has been used as a footnote or a safeguard, but never mainstreamed as something important in the governance of state, on in international organization, or in multinational corporation. I was also thinking that the technology can be utilized as the tool to fight and to prevent corruption, but the new technology has been also used to facilitate uh, crime and, and corruption. Therefore, it is uh, important to rethink of the role of technology uh, to enhance transparency and accountability. The most significant uh, positive developments on corruption prevention in the last 30 years. I think the positive one is that United Nations uh, Convention Against Corruption has been ratified by most countries in the world and corruption and other crimes stated in the United Nations Convention Against Corruption uh, has been criminalized in many national law of the majority of countries in the world. And the second positive uh, development, for example, is the establishment of anti-corruption uh, agency or institution in uh, several countries that have the main power to uh, prevent and to prosecute corruption. However, on the negative side, that the enforcement of this law as national law, it is very rare, especially on the, for example, the prosecution of high-ranking government official or high-ranking executive corporations. It is very rare to see country that actually serious in enforcing and implementing national law on corruption. Another thing is that the international cooperation, because corruption is uh, usually across the border of one country, it is very rare to see the collaborative investigation 
of corruption among nations. So this is make corruptors easily operate in the world. In the terms of education, uh, this is also quite sad because in higher education, uh, the study of corruption, it is actually uh, very rare. Only several uh, higher education institutions that actually have a concentration on anti-corruption, for example. Anti-corruption only uh, studied usually by the law school in some part of the law school uh, or political science but it is never become mainstreamed in higher education uh, compared for example to environmental studies climate change studies or gender studies has been mainstreamed in many higher education i think therefore uh, anti-corruption uh, it is need to be more implemented uh, not only by the national government sub-national government but also by international organization and, and multinational companies Wow, I think there were some really interesting insights there. And we're going to be reflecting on those uh, with colleagues in the Centre for the Study of Corruption in the next episode. But for now, just to say a big thank you to all of our contributors. We really appreciate you giving up the time to reflect on this question or these two questions and share these really brilliant insights. Thank you.